Welcome to the CEBC MENA podcast. Today we are pleased to continue the second season of the series, dealing with the future of mobility, looking at various topics that support the transition towards sustainable mobility. My name is Michael Carroll, Executive Director of the Holling Center for International Dialogue, and I'm privileged to serve as today's host on a topic that has sparked much interest around the globe. For today's episode, the sixth of the season, we will embark on a topic that has garnered significant attention in recent years, autonomous vehicles. The technology of automobiles has advanced to a state where driver assistance and partial automation has become standard on most new vehicles, and technology is fast approaching conditional levels of automation when drivers can actually start to disengage. Full automation is on the horizon, and major automotive and technology companies are investing significantly in developing fully autonomous vehicles. What is the future for autonomous vehicles? What challenges and impact will the development and deployment of this technology create on the future of mobility? To discuss this topic in greater detail, we are privileged to have two distinguished guests with us today. Dr. Ismail Zodi is the Program Manager of Self-Driving Transport Strategy, and Kristen White is Executive Director of the Minnesota Department of Transportation's Office of Connected and Automated Vehicles. My welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining today's podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thank you so much. So I'd like to begin by giving the audience a bit of detail about what the autonomous driving landscape is right now. So my my first question is to Kristen. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of coverage in the news about autonomous driving, you know, and these cars that seem to be driving themselves uh, being done by major tech companies. But I don't really think people really truly understand what autonomous driving is and what the landscape is going to be. So my first question is a simple one. What is autonomous driving? And what has the landscape been in the last few years around autonomous vehicles? Well, thank you, Michael. And and thank you to CEBC for the opportunity to be with you all. I, I first would admit that there is no easy answer when it comes to the incredible technology evolution of automated and autonomous vehicles. And the other thing I would note first off is you cannot believe everything you read as we've learned in the global news landscape. So the one thing I would want our listeners to understand is it's an evolution of technology development, just like any type of emerging technology. The landscape is such that there are continuous developments from all the coasts, from all the global regions, including right here in the Middle East and in the Americas, that are evolving these levels of automation, which I'll touch on in a moment. Uh, But it's really important to understand that it's going to be a long evolution just because we have yet to understand global policy on this topic. There aren't, for example, in America, laws actually comprehensively addressing autonomous vehicle use on our public streets and roads. And, And to me, more importantly, how we make them accessible for all users, affordable for all communities, and sustainable, um, which I know are the goals of of us today. So the one thing I think our listeners would benefit from learning is the levels of automation are really important. And they were actually developed by a society of global auto engineers, the Society of Auto Engineers, SAE. And it's really important that in the news, we focus a lot on these level five pieces of automation. So it's a six part scale starting from zero to five. And the landscape is such that we really focus on that full piece of autonomy where there's no one behind the wheel. In fact, there is maybe no wheel. And that testing is happening in a lot of warmer climates like uh, the West Coast of the United States. But what's really important for us to understand is all across the globe, automakers are selling and deploying lower levels of automation, such as 
lane keeping assist, which keeps you in the center of your lane. And of course, things like automatic emergency braking, which are simpler technologies, but have immediate benefit. And some studies show could reduce our traffic fatalities and serious injuries by anywhere from 20 to 40%, depending on the research. So the landscape is such that we're still continuing to evolve outside of these lower levels of automation and states like Minnesota and, and the US and some of our global leaders like UAE are testing some of these higher levels of automation. But the landscape, if, if there's one thing we learn and continue to remind ourselves is it, it will be decades before we see large scale commercial use on our public transport system across the globe. And the last thing I'll say, because I really want to hear from Ishmael too, is that we have to recognize the Gartner hype cycle, right? There's an ebb and flow of communication and information across this industry, and the hype cycle is real. So there might be something that's promoted in the media that immediately gets a lot of traction and attention, uh, insert name site Tesla. And the hype cycle is a reminder that there is a lot of hype around these technologies, but our role, Ishmael and myself, is to follow the ongoing and emerging trends, not just the hype, so that we understand how these companies continue to grow and merge and the trends that really will impact mobility and sustainability. Thank you. And I think uh, your point on the hype cycle is, is definitely accurate. I, and I think, and that's probably true in multiple places around the, around the globe. So I'd like to pass it on to Ishmael and, and, and get the question. So there's a hype cycle and Kristen's talking about it being potentially decades before this is actually put into a vision Dubai has actually released a vision for autonomous vehicles, um, making it a critical component in its transportation future. So can you explain this vision and how it's different from that of other cities and countries? Okay, so maybe I will uh, follow up on Christine's points, and which is really that I really like the point what you said, don't believe everything you read on the news, because this is perfectly correct, I would say. So um, just to tell you a little bit of what we do or what's our plan, so by year 2030, uh, we have a mandate that every four people, one of them should be in autonomous mode. So think about it that in the next, I don't know, nine years left by 2030, we should have such, um, like I would say, vision to be implemented and deployed in Dubai. And um, why it's unique and why it's different? Because uh, our target uh, is to um, basically cover all modes of transport. So we are not limiting ourselves to certain, like let's say taxi or buses. No, it's actually, the whole ecosystem. So based on this, we had to, um, I would say, tackle or communicate with all the vendors related to different modes. So we talked to people in the shuttle service kind of uh, business, taxis, buses, even like ferries, aerial vehicles, all of those people. So back to the vision, um, uh, many of the cities around the world, they're just focusing on certain modes. So maybe like you'll hear some of the deployment in uh, Switzerland or German or even US, Maybe you see like autonomous shuttles, first one, last mile, but they don't tackle buses, for example, or they don't talk about like a, the kind of marine services. For us, it's unique because we are targeting all, like I said, all modes of transport. This is one thing. Second thing is uh, we try to be uh, flexible as much as possible and learn from our peers in terms of the regulation perspective and flexibility. So many of the companies are uh, trying to um, satisfy the requirements for regulations in different cities around the world. But they kind of, I'm not say, going to say suffer, but they uh, face difficulties uh, because they, the, the way it works that the technology providers versus government. It's not like a, let's work together and make it happen. Uh, for us, the mandate or the requirements coming from the government. So we want to do it. And we are trying to 
like those technology providers are trying to team up with us in order to do it. So it's kind of a little bit different in terms of mentality. But this overall, like the the, the vision, and uh, definitely, uh, I always say that I'm um, I'm not sure I'm I'm lucky or unlucky, but I work in a technology that's super fast in terms of evolving in a super fast evolving city. So imagine that like two quick tracks are working to, together. So it's uh, it's quite I would say interesting and definitely uh, uh, like a futuristic. You know, it potentially being decades. Uh, before this is, we reach level five autonomous driving. But at the same time, the hype train being going pretty fast uh, and a lot of people, you know, diving into this technology, even when it might not be ready yet. I, I'd like to kind of ask the general question of, you know, what challenges do you foresee in adopting this technology down the road? Uh, obviously, we're, we're in two completely different places here. Uh, with two completely different sets of mandates and different levels of infrastructure and how fast that infrastructure can be put into place. So I'd like to start with Minnesota and then go back to Dubai. So Kristen, what are the challenges of adopting this technology in, in the United States? That is a very large question, Mike. And I, I am so thrilled that we have global leaders like Dubai that are talking about their vision and in America, unfortunately, we lack a common vision. That is one of our most fundamental challenges. Uh, there are organizations like ITS America that are developing them on behalf of industry and researchers and government. Uh, but then, of course, the industry has its own additional principles and ideas. Uh, and then you have communities. And, and in America, we're, we're having a global conversation and, and everyone is listening in the fact that Equity has been a gap in our national conversation and vision for automation. And in America in particular, we have created a transportation and transport infrastructure that has left many communities behind. And we now in 2020 and moving forward have realized we must reconcile with that historic past and we must move beyond that. But the one of the challenges in addition to not having that, a part of a national vision that includes mobility, accessibility, affordability, equity, and sustainability is that we still have yet to really come to an agreement on what equity and all of these principles look like in our transport system and the infrastructure that enables it. So in addition to lacking um, a strong national vision and policy, we really are only now starting to have a conversation with community on principles like human-centered design and design thinking and really going to the end customer, whether it's you know a global manufacturer for automotives, reaching out to the end user or even researchers understanding the human factors impacts of some of the emerging technologies like even the connected vehicle technologies that support automation. We really have a challenge in reaching those users. And I wanna share a story. Uh, in Minnesota, we have a, a series of autonomous shuttles. Ismail mentioned this technology. It's one of the early deployers and use cases of the technology. And I was just this past weekend um, in the community of Rochester, where the Global Center Mayo Clinic is housed. And we were talking with some of the users of this new level four autonomous shuttle. And one of them was a young woman in her early 20s, and she was in a wheelchair for her entire life. And she said, you know, Kristen, I struggle because there are even different types of wheelchairs and the industry isn't looking at how I am able to access an automated transit vehicle whether I'm in my automated electric wheelchair or if I'm in my manual wheelchair. So if I choose to use my manual wheelchair, I literally cannot get in the technologies that the industry claims are accessible. 
And it, and it really broke my heart because this is what the industry is failing to do. Whereas, you know, nations like Dubai and, and American governments are really good at trying to learn how to get to those end users and listen to them. But I do honestly, Mike and, and listeners think one of the biggest challenges we have is really making sure those communities are at the center of innovating the solutions so that we actually make them with our, our communities in mind. Uh, I could go on with some of the other major challenges. Of course, in America, like I said, we don't have AB policy. We need to fund our infrastructure system, which you are probably all reading globally is a huge conversation in September 2021. Uh, but I, I'd love to, to pass it on to Ishmael and hear from him as well. So uh, talking about challenges, different. this is our daily job, right? So dealing with challenges. <laughs> you have a long list if you want me to start. But uh, I always say that the, the challenges for us is kind of uh, kind of tripod. So we have the technology part, we have the social acceptance, and we have the regulation. Those are the three main, uh, I would say, tracks and kind of the legs for our foundation. And definitely we cannot underestimate any of them. Uh, so uh, maybe I will just maybe uh, give another example related to social acceptance. So we're trying to do, again, maybe uh, first mile, last mile, autonomous shuttle. Uh, one of the, um, so it was, we have an interesting community. It's only based on, uh, let's say, uh, no cars are allowed and mainly walking and biking. And so people there are literally leaving their kids going around, right? So and then suddenly we wanted to introduce like autonomous shuttle to them. So for them, they started to freak up. We we kind of showed them the technology, the importance of it. That it's like literally is helping them, supporting the like like uh, Christine was saying, supporting some uh, people that have certain disabilities or like elderly people. So this kind of social act acceptance is very important because you can have the technology ready, but if no one is willing to use it, you can you see a lot of friction. So when it comes to the technology, uh, obviously there is no consistent technology across the different. Uh, technology providers, right? So this is like an indication saying that how we cannot come up with sensors uh, that ready for any time of the year, day, any time of the year, any weather. And which actually remind me that we, because we do, and I think I'll be talking about it in a minute as well, about our challenge. We do like kind of challenges here in Dubai and people claim they are the best provider in certain services. When they come to Dubai, the first thing what happened, the sensors cannot handle because it's whether like uh, the high temperature or maybe like a kind of humidity, all of those things. So assuming that you have a technology ready for anywhere in the world, it's not going to happen soon. So this is like the second part, the, um, the technology. When it comes to uh, regulation, I'm not sure how to start, but regulations you have, it's like a big, big umbrella, right? So because you have the policies, you have the processes, you have the standards, so all those things, and at the same time, you are trying to attract the whole world to you, to come to you, like here, right? And each one of the technology providers, they have a, like a long history of dealing with policies and regulations. So how to come up with a flexible regulation enough or framework, at the same time, it protects you as a city and government, and you'll be able to regulate and provide a safe environment to your citizens, right? So it's a kind of, uh, we need to find a balanced way to accommodate those people. At the same time, we need to attract them to come and deploy. Uh, for example, like we have certain requirements when it comes to the uh, Gulf area, right? Because of the weather or because of this, you cannot just use the same AC, for example, using US and bring it here, right? It has certain uh, qualifications, but at the same time, technology providers are around the world, different places. So how are we gonna balance whatever they can provide with your environment together? So it's, again, this is like a third part. I would look at it as a, 
challenge or as a daily daily job for us. So yeah, this is overall I would say the in terms of challenges. So the picture I'm starting to get here is is one where we're in a technological world where they're trying to apply a one solution for all, but the solutions in each individual area, each individual community may be entirely different. Whether it's choices of modality, whether it's um, you know what level of automation is adopted, or as as Ismail was saying, even the weather can impact uh, whether or not certain technologies certain technologies can, that can work. And what I'm hearing here is that. Part of whether or not this technology is adopted is really about stakeholder management and understanding your communities and who benefits. So what I kind of like to turn into now is, is a question about, there's a lot of challenges. How, how do you prepare stakeholders and benefactors, uh, or those that benefit rather, to prepare for this adaptation? Let's start with Ishmael and then we'll pass it to, to Kristen. Yeah, so the, um, definitely you have a lot of stakeholders. Uh, I learned that the regulators are the easiest stakeholders <laughs> because when it comes to like, I can give you a very, uh, I would say basic thing. Okay. When it comes to data, right. And then, okay, data, who's responsible about this data? We have a huge entities for data governance and data sharing policies and all of this. And then you need to deal with them, trying to bring them to the table and explain to them that it's not the same way you, can, you need to handle data because those such car manufacturers or OEMs or even technology providers, they have a lot of proprietary information. So it's not like you cannot just typically ask the same question or the same request from those providers. For example, insurance is the same thing. Insurance providers is not the same. You need to educate them and understand what's going on. Cybersecurity, uh, definitely the social, again, the social acceptance and like a, a community base and community like, a, you know, uh, uh, like a governors and all of this. At the beginning, you need to bring all those people on, on one table and try to, uh, not educating them, but trying to come up with a common um, understanding for the technology. Because at the end, if you allow such a thing, you will have, you'll face a lot of resistance resistance if you don't, if you don't understand. So when it comes to enforcement, for example, right? So enforcement is a big thing. If Even if you allow the standard, the car knows steering wheel. Yeah, they accept and they're okay. People related to data, they accept it. Regulation, you allow uh, this trust, such car to be inspected or to be allowed running on the streets. You, do, you did all your checklist, okay? Now we found out that when it comes to enforcement people, they are not accepting this because, okay, there is an accident happened. I need to catch someone. I see an empty car, right? What can I do with them? So uh, you, found, you will figure out, oh my God, I never thought about this. But yeah, I know enforcement is important, but I didn't know that that important and that can literally stop you from doing your implementation, correct? And then after you check this, they're okay, yeah, we agree, we like this, we are okay. Now you go to the civil defense people, right? What will happen if there is a like car burning? You didn't indicate me how to deal with such car, right? So it, the list is long, and definitely you need to make sure that all those people or stakeholders on the same understanding and same acceptance, and trying to find a certain, I would say, policy framework that uh, give the confidence for all stakeholders and towards to achieving or deploying your technology. So, and this is something we are working on. Yeah, so this is overall. And Kristen? There are four key areas I think we need to think about when it comes to answering the question, who are our stakeholders? First, I would advocate that this is not about 
managing stakeholders' expectations or even managing stakeholders in general. It is about empowering communities to know about this technology, know when it could potentially impact our lives, and to ensure they are, part, are a part of these conversations. So one thing I'd like to share with listeners is a wonderful model called the International Association of Public Participation, known as the IAP2 model. And this is a model similar to the levels of automation. It's levels of engagement with communities. And so at the very low end uh, of the scale is just informing them, kind of what we're doing today. A podcast is a one-way flow of information. So the IAP2 model talks about an evolution from informing this one-way means of communication to empowering communities, wherein you educate them and give them information and you actually co-create and co-design solutions with them. Because as one of my key stakeholders reminded me, if it is not by us and with us, it is not for us. And so our job as government, I believe, is to help bring industry in and engage stakeholders who I believe is everyone. Ishmael gets some amazing examples of key leaders, but I believe everyone has a stake in their future because we are on this cusp, as we learn in these discussions, of a societal revolution like the fourth industrial revolution, the technology revolution of, of the future. And so everyone, when they learn about this, has a stake in increasing access to mobility and connecting them to their jobs and healthcare, and frankly, just using transport to improve quality of life and allow us to live, work, and play where we choose. And when we educate the public about this concept, they get really excited about it. And so the, the third thing I would say, in addition to it's not just about managing stakeholder expectations and to everyone's a stakeholder, third is we cannot use terms like public or social acceptance. Because, as I noted, it's not about having them accept the technology. The technology is a means to an end. It's about empowering them to be a part of a community conversation that creates policy and even better technologies. And so one thing we've learned is uh, in some statistics nationally here in the U.S., about two-thirds of Americans are very hesitant, fearful, afraid of autonomous technologies because, like we talked about, they read the news articles that might uh, miss translate something that's happening in the industry, or more importantly, they haven't had access to this technology. So the fourth thing I would advocate when it comes to stakeholders and community engagement is the solution is public education and demonstrations. Continue podcasts like this to inform our communities, talk to your neighbors about what you're learning, and, and government and industry should be partnering with researchers to deploy demonstrations like we do in Minnesota because statistics show that even as you start the conversation with two-thirds of the American uh, public opposed or fearful of technology, the moment they have an opportunity to touch it and see an autonomous demonstration, hop on one of these self-driving shuttles or see uh, an automated truck going down the road, in Minnesota, our research shows that over 83% of our community members flip the switch to actually supporting investments in government research in this technology. So I, I'm really excited. This is one of the things that actually impassions me the most about our conversations. It is, it is our job, I believe, Ishmael's and I, to continue talking about this with our friends, neighbors, families, and every community that has um, the opportunity to benefit from these technologies. Yeah, so maybe I would say that's uh, acceptance for me, acceptance slash awareness. Awareness is very important at the end, right? So this is the, I think maybe more appropriate word especially that, uh, like you said, not all people are comfortable to use such technology. Uh, at the same time, the news are uh, 
making our life uh, harder. Uh, like imagine one single accident happen anywhere. You cannot imagine how many, like suddenly my phone started to beeping text messages. Did you see this? This is, Yes, I saw it, but I'm, what can I do for it? But, uh, but yeah, but again, the people, some people are overselling their capabilities and technologies. I, I don't want to name a company, but uh, the way they give some, I would say misleading information to their uh, customers or users and some, some stuff bad happens. So I, again, because this is lack of communication and awareness to the customer. And definitely this will reflect our job, right? Because we people are using it as a way that, oh, you saw this accident or saw this issue. I know, but at the end, it's not because of the uh, technology limits. It's because of the, uh, the not the awareness of the customer. It's part, so it's very important to, as a customer, to understand what are you dealing with and what's the limitation and what's, how much you are comfortable to use such technology, right? So yeah, definitely it's a big, big topic about uh, dealing with people and citizens and how they, um, What's the benefit they are getting out of it? Uh, it's very important to be highlighted to them. Yeah. I, I fully agree with what both of you are saying, and you know, I I always find it ironic when people don't trust autonomous. There are, there are thousands of accidents every day caused by humans in the United States. Yet one accident by an autonomous vehicle and everybody freaks out. Uh, you know, so we obviously have skewed perceptions here, which are um, resulting in a skewed uh, assessment of risk about what, what does work and what doesn't work, even though that we know that technology is not quite there yet. Um, and, and I'll say from your, your comments about, you know, personal perceptions about this, to provide an anecdotal story, you know, I recently for the first time was, you know, what would be in a considered a level two car by that scale, you know, with assisted driving where it has Brakes that will stop at a certain point. Adaptive cruise control. It could steer and keep you in your keep you in your lane on the highway. And I tested it out for the first time about a month ago. And my initial reaction is, "Whoa, this is cool." Followed by, "Oh my god, I don't know if I trust this." You know. So I think there's a lot of education. I think that that needs to be done here, um, not just about the technology, but also what the potential benefit could be. And to me personally, it was, I was less tired after my 12 hour drive because I was doing, having the car help me, assist me along the road, you know, allowing me not to, you know, swerve and, but also keeping proper distance between the cars and, and that kind of thing. So the possibilities here are, are staggering. And yet there's a lot of fear hype in addition to the hope hype here that I think that's going on. So talking actually, uh, one one quick uh, maybe things I always use in the, as a notion. So uh, people ask me what you do for for job, right? So I I tell my friends or my colleagues saying, okay guys, let me give you an example or a simple scenario, and I'll tell you what exactly I'm trying to do. So let's say that I, I'm sending you an invitation to meet me at a certain building like the tenth floor, right? So this first time yourself being in this building, what you're gonna do? You will just arrive to the building and ask where is the elevator or where's the lift, and take it and go inside of it and then click your destination which is my my office right so you what what happened you literally went to a building you search for the mode that will deliver you to this or like a basically transport you to this point and said like a box without any windows and you trusted it by just clicking your destination and you left your hands up and it it, it transported you to your floor right it's exactly my job is to make sure that in the future you have the same trust of a technology autonomous vehicles that you just don't think about, you just go inside, click your destination, it will transport you to there. 
is in a comfortable way and you don't even think about the safety in this case so this is kind of the way i always explain this is i'm hoping that i will someday people will trust technology to this extent extent and allow them enable them all the i would say the environment to this like so like uh, even regulation infrastructure all of these things in order for to deploy such technology at the end so this is the kind of uh hopefully in the future this will happen and I would just like to build on that. I completely agree, Ishmael. It's about trust. And, and it's also about building relationships. Because if you don't have a relationship with that person, that organization, that brand, you're not going to trust them, especially if all of the information you're getting is out of the media. And one thing I, I'm reminded by our human factors researchers here in the US is that humans quite often can forgive other humans for mistakes. But it is very difficult for us to forgive a machine or a robot. And so that's why it's incumbent upon all of us to have podcasts like this to, to educate people about what we're trying to do so they have enough information to hopefully trust that the elevator will get them to their floor or that the plane will get them on autopilot to their destination or in the future, the fully self-driving vehicle will in fact need a human operator so that they can get to their destination safely. So we're, we're getting close to the, to the end of our session here. So I I'm going to ask you guys to answer the same final question, and it admittedly is going to be a little open-ended. So my final question uh, to the both of you is, do you think that autonomous vehicles are the future of mobility? If so, who do you think the early adopters should be? And when do you think it'll finally become a reality? Is this a hype train going nowhere, or is this really, truly the future? And so I'd like each of you to answer that admittedly, and I apologize, very open-ended question. Sure, save the hardest question for last. I feel like I'm in school taking the toughest question at the end of the test. Absolutely, autonomous technology is a part of the future ecosystem of mobility. And automation is not going away. And automation has to be a part of an ecosystem that include connected vehicle technologies, electric vehicle technologies, shared mobility, and even other transport technologies that we haven't even begun to fathom. And so I, I absolutely believe that automated vehicles are a part of this ecosystem and they're coming fast. As Ishmael noted, lower levels of automation are here. Mike, you noted you've been in one. My 73-year-old mother who lives in rural South Dakota, the heart of the Americas, uh, just purchased a level two automated vehicle and is learning how that works. So I don't know if it's aging communities like my mom who are the early adopters, but I absolutely believe that people who use these technologies earlier and, and research shows the more excited folks are people that currently face mobility challenges. So people who um, have limited access to facilities, people who are in communities that have been underinvested in transportation, many low-income communities, for example, in the United States, people who are aging and might unfortunately not be able to have a driver's license that you know, allows them to, to drive their own vehicle. Uh, people who use public transport. Transit is the original shared mobility, the bus system. And so there's a lot of capacity to leverage that innovation into the future. Now, I'm a bit of a pessimist when it comes to your question, when will it become reality? And I joke with my team, uh, the Minnesota Office of Connected and Automated Vehicles, it's gonna be 2036, Six, and it's going to be June 15th of that date. Um, the joke is there is no timeline for us. We just have to be flexible, nimble, and agile enough to have conversations like this to develop continued policy, 
continued technology and, in, and infrastructure investments, because I really do believe it's going to be decades before our communities are ready and willing to allow these technologies to be more commercially and wide scale deployed so that it actually creates a fleet of autonomy. autonomy. Uh, but I'm really excited that with more conversations like this and amazing thought leadership coming out of Ishmael and Dubai, the, that vision needs to be a global vision. And when that global vision can become a consensus based one, then I think we'll see a reality and an answer to your question about when this happens. So maybe uh, in terms of the adopters, I, I think Christine uh, uh, covered very well. But in terms of the when, let me disagree a little bit with Christine. So I'm more optimistic, actually. I'm the other side of the world, right? So. Uh, I'm actually no. I, I, it's very, it's very soon. Uh, so, for example, uh, because of part of our vision or, or the work we do, we had to tackle every mode of transport, right? So, and then we kind of uh, basically um, when use one by one or like a plan for one by one, and then we had to sit with every technology provider and every of these modes. So we had to sit with them, understand what's going on, their plan, deployment, and all of this. So we kind of had a complete, I would say, full picture of a maturity assessment and technology readiness of all these companies across the globe, I would say. So uh, when it comes to, so to give you some of the our insights or our expectations, and I mean, it's, it's soon, so we will, you can quote me after this in a couple of years. So in uh, I would say when it comes to uh, shuttle services, this is definitely the most mature technology uh, and uh, definitely we can deploy now. I mean, there are already some deployment and testing around the world, I think. If you have the proper environment infrastructure, you can just literally expand it. Uh, but when it comes to, let's say, taxi services, right, or like uh, e-hill services, uh, this is maybe in next two, three years. It's very soon. Um, but when it comes to buses, this is the tricky part. Buses, uh, people still struggling with the electric buses. So they need to <laughs> overpass the electric buses and then think about the autonomous features. So I would say maybe a little bit further, maybe next five years. Uh, give or take, and it's maybe 2027-ish. This is kind of the frame. Uh, when it comes to marine services, like a water autonomous feature, uh, ferries or boats, uh, this kind of maybe uh, around the same time, 2027-ish. Uh, but if you think about as a privately owned autonomous vehicle, maybe this is will 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 go to Christine point that no, not for sure not before 2030. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, but definitely. Because the one of the biggest challenges about the business model, right? In order to have like a feasibility, why you want to do it? Why should I buy a car autonomously that costs you, I don't know, how many uh, thousand dollars instead of just use a regular car, right? So, but if I use it as a kind of subscription base or like a, a monthly fee base, similar to kind of taxi or uh, uh, services, this is can be happening, right? So it's kind of uh, public transport services more than just personal services. Uh, at this case, I would say it's soon. So, uh, long story short, starting year 2023, you will see those stars running. This is my uh, my vision. <laughs> we all wish we could have your vision, uh, Ishmael. <laughs> I, I, I really do have to go back to what I said earlier. Countries like Dubai having strong visions, that's what can make this happen. And, and I, I appreciate the thought leadership coming out of Dubai and the opportunity to talk about it today. I, I fully agree. And um, we'll see. We'll, we'll have you back on, Ishmael, in maybe 2023 and see whether or not you were close to right. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it just strikes me as we're not that far away. But I think, you know, you raise a good point, Ishmael, where it may be for things like uh, shared shared 
services might be taxis, you know, um, buses, you know, things where um, you you transport larger amounts of people uh, rather than, let's be honest, an electric car in, in itself is an expensive thing nowadays. So imagine adding the automation system. So it might be a while before the average consumer could be uh, purchasing one of these vehicles. Uh, in the meantime, we'll enjoy our level two cars uh, and, um, and um, wait to see how what, what unfolds uh, with both individuals, stakeholders, communities, and uh, the technology itself. So I'd like to thank both of you today, Dr. Ismail Zodi, the Program Manager of Self-Driving Transport Strategy at Dubai, and Kristen White, the Executive Director of the Minnesota Department of Transportation's um, Office of Connected Automated Services. Again, this episode is part of the second season that will focus on the future of mobility. Future episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or SoundCloud. This episode's sponsor is the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations in the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, Eurasia, and Europe. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen communications across opinion leaders and experts. The Holling Center Initiative on Resource Resiliency aims to foster cooperative solutions to sustainable development. Dialogues focus on issues of water, energy, food, and health. Learn more at hollingcenter.org.